1984, three Swedish dancing deosticks sang about thunder and lightning in golden shoes and charmed their way to the top, exactly 10 years after Sweden's first victory. The three brothers became superstars overnight, loved by the Swedish people but despised by the Swedish media. Today I have invited the middle brother Rickard Herrej to Eurovision Legends and I wonder what was it like to be 19 years old on top of the world and at the same time being part of a tight religious family. What has happened since the victory and how did that victory change the lives for him and his brothers? I am your golden toilet attendant Emil Lövström, let's head back to the 80s. Welcome to Eurovision Legends, Rickard Herrej. Well, thank you very much. Nice to be here. How are you today? Uh, I'm pretty good, considering the circumstances of the world. Uh, doing fine. To get warmed up and in a good mood, I thought we could begin with some quick questions. Mm-hmm. I ask a question and you give one word answers. Are you ready? Okay, I'll try. Favorite Eurovision song? Oh, Love Shine a Light. Favorite Eurovision singer? Mm, Celine Dion. Best song from Sweden in Eurovision besides Digilu? Um, Euphoria. Worst song from Sweden in Eurovision? Oh boy. Uh, then we'll have to go back to the 70s or something. Some man, some say your name. From 1973. Yes. Who should have won Eurovision but didn't? Oh, who should have won but didn't? Uh, Cliff Richard? Who should not have won Eurovision? Ooh. Mm. Ooh, a lot of people. <laughs> I, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I can't think of anyone specific. And finally, remove one. Waterloo, Digaloo, Boogaloo or Let's Get Happy with Lou? Let's Get Happy with Lou. And that concludes the worst celebrity jeopardy ever. <laughs> you grew up in Gothenburg, among other places, and I actually walk past your old terrace house in Västra Frölunda every day when I walk to work. Oh, you do? Tynnered? Yes, I work in Önnered. Oh, there you go. You go over the hill a little bit. Okay. Yes. Mm-hmm. And I've heard many stories that it was packed with fans all around your home who hoped to catch a glimpse of you and your brothers. Uh, yes, but not there, uh, because we, we moved away from there long before we, uh, we broke through. But there was in, uh, in my sister's house in Tynered, which was uh, another half a mile away from there, where we stayed in the beginning and when we came to, back to Sweden, we stayed at my sister's house. And uh, so there was a lot of fans outside there. Let us start from the very beginning. In 1984, you and your brothers Louis and Per took part in a Swedish pre-selection, Melody Festivalen, and you were basically completely unknown to the Swedish audience prior to that day. Yes. Can you please describe the road that led you to Melody Festivalen? Uh, well, quite a long road. Uh, we brothers started singing in the early 70s together. And uh, with our sister at the time as well. 
And uh, sometime by the end of the 70s, we, uh, we lost a sister along the way. She preferred to do other things. And then we moved to uh, America. And uh, just before we moved to America, actually, we had contact with a big record company and did some recordings. Uh, and then we moved to America. We were there. And then by the fall of 1982, I was 18 and then working as a dancer in, uh, in Hollywood in the TV series Fame. And uh, that was, um, yeah, Swedish TV thought that was a little interesting. Fame was a very big TV show at the moment. And the Swedish young man dancing in there was uh, interesting. So they, they did some, uh, yeah, sent a reporter and showed it on Swedish television. And our record company then woke up all of a sudden and said, wait a minute. That's our guy. And uh, they thought that would be a great idea if, uh, if we then came back to Sweden and took part in uh, the pre-selection. We know straight from the mouth of Sweden's most famous or infamous record label boss, Bat Carlson, that at first the song Digilu Digile wasn't picked by the selection jury to compete in Melody Festival, but somehow he managed to get it selected anyway. Do you know how Bat made this happen? Well, I, first of all, I'm not sure that it's true. That's his version of the story. And, uh, and this uh, record company boss is sometimes uh, skews the truth a little bit to his favor. <laughs> and, uh, and, but I do know there were, I mean, they were songs. I mean, they were talking about different songs. And it's always a selection. And the jury group picks 10 songs. And I think some of the jury were not convinced that it was a good song or the, uh, a song for the Melody Festival or the pre-selection. And so I know it was one of the last to be picked. But I'm not sure the record company boss had anything to do with it, actually. <laughs> the song was specially written for you by uh, Torgny Söderberg. Yes. And, and I wonder, was Digilu Digilei the only song you were offered? No, uh, but this song was specifically written. Uh, my brother, Per, he was actually in the studio uh, with Torgny as uh, it was written. And he had some suggestions and they you know, fooled around for a little bit. And then Torgny added some parts to the song, the chorus. And Per was sitting right there next to him. And, and um, Torgny just stood up and said, hallelujah, when, when, he, when he finished uh, the chorus and, and won a swoop. But we also had another song. We, we sang two songs uh, for the selection to the top 10. So we could choose from um, a song in English that was called Mexico and then Digilu. So we had to choose between the two because both of them made to the, to the pre-selection in Sweden. And uh, we basically chose the one that we thought was going to win. You mean Kalsomis was a song that you were offered too? Yeah, yeah. No, we, we, we actually were the ones who sent it in to the pre-selection. Our version was the one that was accepted. 
but we could not sing two songs in the pre-selection, so we chose <laughs> one. Yeah. And then, uh, and then uh, Anders Glenn in his car, they sang his song. This time, Swedish music industry in general and Melody Festival in particular was dominated by Torgny Söderberg and his good friend and colleague Lasse Holm, who yes. visited this podcast in a previous episode. Didn't Lasse present any song for you as well? Not in 84, as I know, but in 85 he did. Uh, in 1985, uh, we had a song called Summer Party. Yeah. Uh, and uh, which we didn't want to be sent into the to the pre-selection, but I think they sent it in anyways. Yes, uh, and that's I, true. But but I think it did. I didn't make it. I think it was like uh, yeah, like a first backup song or something. But we were not interested in singing it in the pre-selection in '85 either way. We would not have been there uh, the next following year uh, because we were. Yeah, we were very happy with our performance and with the, the success that we had, and we didn't feel it was necessary to be in the pre-selection the following year. So we would not have been in there, even if the song would have made it. At least that was our that was our sort of idea at the time. But we used that song for the Sopot Festival, which was the sort of the Eastern European Eurovision at the time. And we actually won the Sopot Festival with that song. It was a it was a quite a success for us in Eastern Europe. The summer exactly, party. because the Iron Curtain opened for. We must talk about that uh, more later. But can we go back to Digilu Digilay? Yes. The lyrics were written by the prominent lyricist Britt Lindeborg, who uh, already in 1969 wrote the lyrics for Sweden's contribution "Judy min vän" with uh, Tommy Körberg. Correct. Judy min vän, här går vår korsväg, kan ses vi igen. Då får vi se vad livet har gjort med oss, Judy min vän. In an industry otherwise dominated by males, she mm-hmm. was a very successful lyricist, but in a later interview, she revealed that after the victory with Digilu Digilay, she never got any more offers to write lyrics. Ha! Huh. Interesting. And this is supposed to have happened since her colleagues considered the lyrics corny, which in retrospect is very strange considering the success the song became and also very unfair since Brit wrote all of the lyrics except for the nonsense phrase Digilu Digilay, which was the invention of Torgny Söderberg. That is correct. Uh, 
I'm not sure the reason why she wasn't offered so many. There were two other very prominent lyricists at the time that wrote very, very much for our record label, amongst other labels. Ingelapling Forsman and Monika Forsberg. They wrote a lot of songs. I mean, every day, basically, they wrote lyrics for a song, I think. So I think they were used more at the time. And uh, and Britt was I not regularly used by our record company either. But And she was also a teacher, I think, at the time. And so she had a regular job, and but also wrote a lot of lyrics. Uh, so uh, I'm not sure why she wasn't... Uh, asked to write so many more lyrics, but uh, I think maybe it was already sort of for her that she wasn't writing so many lyrics before either. But uh, we're very happy that she wrote our lyrics. <laughs> very. <laughs> if we go back to the pre-selection in 1984, do you remember who you thought would win it? In the in the Swedish pre-selection? Yeah. Uh, no, I thought we would win. <laughs> yeah, and you did, with an yeah. eight-point margin. Yes, we did. And... Even though there was some cheating, but uh, that was uh, some jury manipulation. We have found out 15 years later, but that was a that's a different story. Do you mean that the song that came second would have won, or no, not at all. I, actually, the, the the song named Rendezvous, yeah, which was uh, with another sort of competing competitor record company. They had um, a couple of people in the, in the two different jury groups that made sure that they got the top points from those two jury, jury groups, which I found out from the person that was actually in the jury group about 15 or 20 years later. Uh, I met the person and they told me about this and said, well, this is you know history now, so I can tell you what happened. So, so actually, there were two jury groups that gave full points to uh, this Rendezvous song, and both of them were actually friends or connected to the record company or the artist. Exactly, John Ballard, and he is actually a composer and lyricist today and, uh, and yes. competed in Eurovision for Russia some years ago with the song uh, You're the Only One. Yeah, a very nice guy, good good composer and a very, very nice guy. But, you know, a fierce competitiveness among the record companies and both uh, our record label and his record label had very, let's just say, uh, <clears throat> interesting record label owners and they, they would not uh, hesitate to use anything to their advantage. I understand. Mm -hmm. uh, you won the competition yes. and became big stars overnight. Yes. And I wonder here, because what I understand, not everyone was happy with this, and several Swedish artists openly criticized you in the Swedish media. Among them were the always opinionated Tommy Körberg. Yes. <laughs> yes. I mean, first of all, we were totally unknown. Uh, to anyone in Sweden. We were not connected to any people in the music world in Stockholm. Uh, we had not grown up in Stockholm. We had lived in America for a few years. We were also a part of a, sort of a, a religion. We were Mormons. And the year before, we had another artist, Carola, who who uh, made a big success and a big breakthrough in, in, in her career. And she was also religious, not a Mormon though, but Christian. And so I think there was a combined with our record label not being the most uh, 
credi or should I say popular record label amongst the elite music people in Sweden. The combination there uh, made it easy to say that we were just sort of bubblegum pop or something and uh, nothing to take seriously and, and easy to criticize. What was it like to be criticized so early? I mean, you can hardly have been media trained in 1984. No, we were not. And we, <laughs> we, we got burned uh, quite badly the first uh, couple of weeks. Uh, yeah, we basically, we didn't really understand other artists going out and criticizing uh, us as artists. We just thought that was strange. And... Uh, and but uh, we basically answered this when Tommy Sherby, the artist, went out in the press, and we basically answered in a way that we didn't know was going to be very bad because of his history. We didn't know his history. We just said, well, well you know, we just want to be who we are. You know, everybody's different. Uh, you know, just because you're in music, we don't have to do you know sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And it apparently was the case that he had done drugs and was convicted of doing drugs. So all of a sudden, all the newspapers called everybody up in Sweden and said, what do you think about the Hooray brothers accusing Tommy Sherby of doing drugs? And uh, yeah, so it was uh, it was a very, it became a very strange situation. <laughs> so uh, totally unintended because we had no idea. We just we basically just said, you know, we are who we are and other people are who they are and everybody's different. And let's just uh, play the music. How are your relation to Tommy Sherby today? Uh, I don't really have a relationship with him, but I do meet him basically every summer. Uh, at least once every summer, because we uh, have a mutual uh, friend in uh, Benny Anderson. Our summer house is right next to Benny Anderson's uh, summer house in, in Trusa, in Sweden. And uh, we have a mutual midsummer celebration, and uh, Benny and Tommy and some other friends play music. And I handle the dancing around the midsummer uh, on the midsummer field there and with all the neighbors. And so we, we do a mutual midsummer celebration together every summer. So we're fine. That's okay. Tommy's just uh, Tommy's the way he is. He always has an opinion about everybody and uh, likes to say bad talk people sometimes. That's just the way he is. Much spotlight was pointed on your religion, as you said, uh -huh. uh, since all of your family belong to the Church of the Latter-day Saints, or more commonly known as the Mormons. Yes. And from what I understand, you left the Mormons. Religion is a very personal thing to me, uh, you know, faith, believing in God and, and in your, your, your personal beliefs. And uh, as I became an adult, right, you know, at the time that we got a big break in music and we were touring and we were traveling and we were not connected to the church in the same way. We didn't go to the same church every Sunday that we used to and and I was growing up becoming an adult and it just sort of yeah, just fa faded away for me and just all of a sudden I noticed it was not something that I needed or something that I missed. So it was just a personal development if you, you can say that. Uh, we go back to the main focus. Uh, your Eurovision trip went to Luxembourg. What uh -huh. do you remember from your week there? Very busy. Every day there was, uh, you know, newspapers. They had sort of booked uh, three or four hours doing exclusive uh, interviews, or exclusive uh, picnics or going to some excursion, taking photos. And, uh, you know, every, every big Swedish newspaper wanted their, you know, little 
half a day or three or four hours. So we were quite busy every day, apart from the rehearsals and uh, doing media, basically, all the time. How was the situation in the Swedish delegation? No, it was, it was pretty good. Yeah, I thought it was, it was a nice group. In previous episodes, I've talked to the artists from United Kingdom, Denmark and Norway from this year. Mm -hmm. And they all said that you guys seemed very confident during the week, almost a little cocky. Is this true or were you just nervous? No, uh, I, I would say we were confident. Uh, I, I thought we were going to win uh, because I, I thought the song was very good. And, uh, you know, we had self-confidence in our, in our performance and we had, you know, uh, it just felt good. We had done some TV shows around Europe before the Eurovision and in, in, in the Netherlands, uh, for example, and we had a very good reception and it just felt good. And I mean, there were some other good songs in the, in the Eurovision that year as well, uh, but we felt that we had something a little more unique maybe. But, you know, it's hard to be objective about yourself. But, but we were very confident that we would, you know, do a good performance. And, 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 if, and if everything clicked, we, we could certainly win. Do you remember who you thought was your biggest competitor? Oh, boy. England had a good song. Uh, no, Ireland had a good song in, in uh, Terminal 3. I didn't think it was going to do as well as it did. And maybe it did because it was written by Johnny Logan. Terminal 3, fight some time. Linda Martin, great artist, great singer. And, uh, and Johnny Logan, certainly a great artist and a great composer as well. And uh, I'm just happy he, he, he didn't win the one time that uh, <laughs> every other time he has been in Eurovision, he's won. But not that time. He came in second. So his record is quite unbeatable, I would say. But, but uh, I was very happy that he came in second. <laughs> Tell us about your iconic outfit. Well, had we seen Eurovision with Buck's Fizz... I don't think we would have had that outfit because they had basically the same, you know, the white pants and the and the colored tops, which I didn't know because we were living in America at the time when Bucks Fizz uh, performed. This was before YouTube. Exactly. That, this was before YouTube and the internet and everything. Uh, so uh, we had not seen them because uh, we lived in America for a few years. But either way, we got some clothes presented to us by a designer in Sweden. Uh, very elaborate, artsy clothes uh, that were, we were going to wear. And we just didn't feel comfortable. Uh, and we just said, no, let's keep it simple. Let's keep it very simple. Let's just have, you know, white pants and different color shirts uh, and, we'll do, and golden shoes. So uh, we just decided to simplify it really, really. Yeah. And that's what happened. We basically, we got some white pants and uh, we had three different colors sewn up, actually, from some shower curtain material or something. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> no. Well, I mean, something like that. It wasn't plastic or anything, but it was, it was something treated uh, uh, material that, that she found, the, the seamstress, 
it was very unplanned and very ad hoc just to keep it simple. And that's that's the only reason we ended up with the clothes we had. Did you get to choose the color of the chart yourself? Uh, no. I, well, we just basically said different colors, I think. And then she came with what she found. And just that, that turned out to be the blue, turquoise, and the, and the red. How many pairs of golden shoes do you have? Uh... Quite a few <laughs> pairs of golden shoes. Uh, one original, of course, and then uh, I would say maybe 10 more of different kinds and different ages through the years. Because uh, the originals basically were only worn, I would say, 10 and 15 times maybe. Uh, in the broadcast, we can see how you sit in the green room during the voting and you each have a Walkman. What did you listen to? Um... I don't remember. I think Louie was the one listening to music mostly. We were first to perform, so we had to wait a long time in the green room. Uh, so to make time go by and to just, we actually played the Swedish board game, Fiamiknuf. Yeah. <laughs> we, we played that for the whole, basically for the whole time. And then we also went around getting autographs from the other artists to sign in the and the sort of booklet that was there. And uh, yeah, just because to sort of not forget the moment and, and try to enjoy the moment as well and and appreciate being there with so many other, you know, wonderful artists and representing their countries and, and uh, you know, with their hopes and dreams. It's uh, for many a one-time experience and, uh, and a very honorable experience to represent your country in the Eurovision, I think. And for us, it was very, very special. Uh, we were young. And uh, ABBA was the Swedish band that was everything for to Swedish people, uh, especially with the Eurovision, and they broke through uh, through the Eurovision. So, so Eurovision was very big with the Swedish people. It was a great honor to be there. How was it to go back to Sweden after this victory? Unreal uh, is the word I would say uh, for the reception was unbelievable. Uh, the success or the things we we got to do uh, the first year or two after that we won the Eurovision was uh, you know unbelievable for us. We have always dreamt of being musicians, always dreamt of touring, uh, dreamt of doing records and and doing music. And so for us, uh, you know, as young well, I wouldn't say boys, but young men at least, you know, Louis was seventeen, I was nineteen, Pear was twenty five, but but we still fairly unexperienced and uh, and new to the music scene it was a it was a, a fantastic period since you won another contest the year after in poland the support mm -hmm. international song festival you got to tour behind the iron curtain yes how was it to to uh, tour in the soviet union interesting uh it was very it was very different in poland it was very much uh, like more Western uh, country type of touring, but they were crazier in Poland. They would throw anything up on stage and just scream the whole time. <laughs> and they would cover our tour bus in lipstick writings. And so they, they were a little, uh, yeah, over the top in Poland, but it was kind of nice. Uh, also, I mean, the reception as, as on stage was uh, as the audience in Russia or the Soviet Union, it was more of a, theater audience, more civilized, more uh, applauding uh, and uh, walking up to the stage, putting flowers on the stage, 
you know, bravo, bravo, you know, like that, more of a theater type audience, not so rowdy. So it, it was a little different, but we, we performed, uh, our first tour was together with uh, Ala Pugachova. She was the mega star and we got to perform and uh, tour with her the first uh, time around. And the second time we, we did a tour ourselves, but we were, you know, we played, you know, 15,000 every night uh, for like 10 days in a row in, in Moscow. So it was a lot of people. It was a, it was big, a big, uh, a big thing, uh, and a big tour. We we were not the first Western artists to perform behind the Iron Curtain, but I think we were certainly the first band to tour, and behind the Iron Curtain, the Western band. I think Elton John and John Denver had been there doing a you know a, a performance before we had, but uh, but basically we were among the first to do a big tour from uh, from another country, sort of. So uh, it was a great honor in that sense, but it was also very different, a very different country and a very different environment to be in. For three and a half years, you had a monumental career where Sweden's most popular group and you released record after record. What was it like to live and work that fast? In many ways, fantastic. Uh, the music, the touring, uh, but at the same time, music is also business. Uh, there are a lot of things behind the scenes with the record labels, with the touring companies. And uh, we were connected to a touring company that basically dissolved, you know, after the second year we were on tour. So they, were, they had other artists as well. and. And they just, they, they fell apart because of management issues and, and things like that. So, so we lost our management in, in Sweden in that, in that sense. And the record label, we decided to leave because let's just say our record company owner is not the most honest guy in the world. And uh, we noticed that basically after a few months. So, so we were just, uh, so we had some unfortunate uh, issues with the, with the business part of the of the of the music industry, at the same time we were enjoying the time, having the time of our lives, uh, as far as success, touring and and meeting the audience and and um, and recording things and doing TV shows. So, so it was a it was a mixed time for uh, for young men to be to be in the business. But I think a lot of uh, musicians end up with the same situation or not the same but but similar situations they have uh, difficulties usually happen in the business part of the yeah the music industry uh, i've heard that this record label boss uh, released some demo versions against your will he did a lot of things against our will he had no he didn't care anything about what we thought or what we thought was good or what we wanted to do. He, I mean, which is bad in a sense, you know, as an artist, you're not always right. 
I mean, sometimes the record label owner, it could actually be right. <laughs> it's not, you know, you can disagree on things. And, and, and but the, the main thing is that when you're working with an artist and when you have a great success is that you also have a, a trust and a sort of collaboration that works uh, and everybody's interested in doing what's best for uh, sort of making the, the brand or the artist have more success. But uh, I would say our record company owner had no interest at all in, in us or our success. He was just interested in selling records. He couldn't care less about us. So, so he just did things the way he wanted to. He didn't tell us. He did things behind our back. And that doesn't work, really. I mean, you have to trust each other somewhat, at least. And he released a lot of demos that he promised he would never release. And they were just sort of very simple demos that he just decided that, well, now I can release them and I don't care. You uh, touched a topic previously. Can we please talk a little about your romance with Carola? <laughs> I wonder, was it love I Divey or just friends with benefits? Well, first of all, I'm not going to get into uh, you know our, our relationship. Uh, let's just say we dated for a while. So uh, that's uh, we were in the same record company, and uh, and we we you know we she has a lot of energy, and I have a lot of energy, and a lot of sort of we were both popular, and we were with the same management company, the same record label, and uh, so you know we ran into each other every once in a while, and and uh, that's I'm not going to get into the details or anything about it. What happened after these years as superstars? Oh. There's a lot of years. There's a lot of things about <laughs> Wow, for me... Uh, I mean, I ask because I know that you are one of Sweden's biggest artists mm -hmm. under several years. And suddenly you weren't. Yeah, that that's music for you. <laughs> yeah. It, it happens. No, uh, first of all, I got married right when we, uh, right when we were uh, sort of breaking up. Uh, And my brother Louis was going away to serve a mission as a voluntary missionary for a couple of years. So there was sort of a hiatus or a, a, a pause in our in our uh, music business stuff. So uh, I got married and I had two kids right away. So uh, I was quite busy with that and, and settled into I started playing football again and ended up playing football, you know, in a whatever second division football in Sweden for a while. And. And then I jumped into musical theater and uh, did uh, some musicals. I did Grease, uh, did uh, West Side Story, I did Hair. So uh, I worked with musicals in the biggest musical theaters in, in Stockholm for a while. And that sort of ended up being more and more. And then all of a sudden I was directing and producing musicals and uh, had some, some success with that. And then uh, I moved to America again with my family when my kids were starting to grow up a little bit. We decided to go to America and live there for a few years. Yeah, and then we came back. 
Yeah, I've, I've, been, I've been working with restaurants, uh, basically. I've worked as a general manager for different restaurants like Hard Rock Cafe, like Golden Hits in Stockholm. So I do a little everything. In 1993, you said to the Swedish newspapers that you were going to compete again in Melodifestivalen and sing the song I Ögon. But as we all know, that didn't happen. How come? Well, I'm not sure I said I was going to perform. Maybe somebody picked up a rumor that I, I, was, uh, I was somehow going to test a song to maybe perform again in the, in the Melodifestivalen. And the And I wouldn't, that would have been nice, but the song was not for me. When, when I went into the studio to sort of make a test demo version to feel it out and see if it was a song that I could perform well, it turned out it was definitely not a song for me. Uh, totally wrong uh, as far as uh, yeah, the, the pitch and, 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 and uh, yeah, the song just wasn't right for me. It was done very well on a demo by another Uh, Eurovision artist from Sweden, Frank Ådal, uh, he, and he has a he's a tenor. He has a very high. He has a fantastic voice, and he he sang it in the in the sort of demo version that made it into the pre-selection in a way that I could never sing it. When I tried the demo, it just wasn't. No, this is not going to fit me. So it was never a it was never really a possibility that I was going to be in there. I mean, as soon as I tested the song, it was just out of the question for me. So, but, it, but I mean, if I had a, had had a good song, I, I could have performed again. I would, that would have been nice, but it just, yeah, wasn't meant to be. I totally agree. The demo version with Frank Wadal is fantastic. And let's play a snippet of it here. And you were not the only Eurovision artist who tried that song. Martin Stenmark, that competed for Sweden in 2005, sang it. And Gladys Del Pilar from Aphrodite, Sweden 2002, tried the song among others. But in the end it was given to the seasoned backup singer Pernilla Emme and finished third. In 1999, in Melodifestivalen, you sang backup for your friend Christy Björkman, who competed with a ballad about love between two men. Was it a no-brainer to say yes to that? I ask because I remember how the view of homosexuality was then, even if Sweden is a very progressive country. Yeah, to me it was a no-brainer. Also, it was a little bit sort of, if we can get another article or two, because I'm, you know, backing him up, that's nice. We were very good friends, we worked very close together, and uh, I just, you know, for me it was, uh, yeah, it was a no-brainer. It wasn't my performance in any way. I was just, I was just a backup singer. But uh, but I did it because he was my friend, and 
and I thought maybe we can get a, at least a little bit more attention to it. So. The song ended last with only six progressive points. Yeah. What a shame, what a shame. Love yeah, the song, well, love yeah, the song. The excellent choreographer Hans Marklund said to me that he was not happy with this performance in the end. And I quote him here. It became a dental conference. It looked like a bunch of dentists were nervous in a room. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I agree a little bit. It wasn't the greatest uh, show with number. It wasn't staged or choreographed in a, in, a, in, a, in a great way. It didn't, yeah, it didn't really click into a organic sort of you know, feel good, uh, everything is in the right place, so this is the best we can do. Uh, there were some issues with, uh, yeah, with the, yeah, during rehearsals that we didn't quite get it right, and then we were wearing white costumes all over. It, it, it was, I mean, I liked the song, uh, and I think it, it was all right, but it, but it, it probably could have been done better. Uh, you and Christa Björkman worked together during many years, mm-hmm. but that later changed. What happened? Well, we worked, we were worked very close. So we, we were both business partners and uh, best friends. And we, I mean, we spent so much time together. We toured with a show, maybe we, maybe we did 800 concerts or something, I would guess, together for, you know, seven or eight years. We basically were, you know, like two peas in a pot, but we were like, you know, really, really close. And eventually it started, you know, tearing a little bit, you know, personal lives and, and uh, yeah, things happen around us with the, uh, I was living in America partly, he was doing some things in Sweden. I would just say we, we were both sort of, we grew apart a little bit and, uh, and as any business or friend relationship that is very intense, things can sort of, yeah, I think we both were a part of being, helping it to sort of disintegrate a little bit into a more casual relationship that we have today. I understand. Uh, during this year's Melody Festival and tour, several songwriters told me that you and your brothers said to them that you would like to take part in Melody Festival again. Well, I wouldn't. Oh, yes and no. Uh, we we wouldn't exclude the idea of taking part in Melody Festival. I we we were asked in the early two thousand somewhere a couple of times or at least the question was floated out to us if we wanted to or not. And a few songs came our way, but it was never, we never said, oh yeah, let's do it. Uh, and uh, so it was never a question of that. I don't think we ever recorded a song or or sent in together. Uh, no, I don't believe so. I recorded a couple of songs that I, that I, that I wanted to do, but there was also a problem because I was very close to, uh, to the Christy Björkman, who was then working with Melody Festival. And, and he was in trouble a little bit because of using some of his, uh, yeah, because he was friends with so many and let his friends uh, come in and, and sing songs in the qualification. Uh, and since we had business together, we had a company together and we were very close. So it was a little bit of an issue for me to take part at the same time. Can you reveal any song that you have sent? Uh, well, I've sent a, a couple of songs. Uh, well, I, one song that I sent in was, uh, well, that I wanted to do, but they said no because of my relationship with with, with Krista. It was on my album in 2006, 
I did a solo album and uh, one of the songs was uh, Dansa med en ängel. sent in. I could not be in there because of my relationship with Kristen. It wasn't even uh, an issue of, of judging the song or not the song. It might not have been in there anyways, but uh, but it, uh, the, the critical issue was uh, my relationship with uh, Kristen. reveal anything Hedays have said no to that maybe later have participated with other mm, no not really I don't uh, I don't remember recall anything that oh we should have done that one uh, that was a really good one uh, not that I remember I don't recall anything coming our way that was sort of then used in a way that uh, that was uh, successful yeah we performed together many times uh, I even sang songs in Russian i even sang songs in, in Russian that I don't remember that I sang. I, I, I've seen videos later uh, in the last couple of years that I said, I sang that? I didn't know that. <laughs> I forgot. I totally forgot. Uh, apparently, I sang something in Russian. I sang something in Polish. We did something in Spanish. Things that uh, We did a lot of things uh, in a very short period for a while. So a lot of things just went you know, in that way and out the other way. So, Thank you so much for this nice chat, Rikard. Well, thank you. And thanks to you all listeners out there in the world. I hope you enjoyed this chat with me and Rikard Herre. And if you did, subscribe, like and write a review and tell everyone you know about Eurovision Legends. You find Eurovision Legends on Facebook and Instagram and all information is on my website eurovisionlegends.se. Last question. What is your hope for 2021, Rikard? Well, my hope is that we will get a vaccine very soon so that the music industry can come alive again. I mean, the music industry and the whole world basically is standing still. The touring, the concerts, the theaters, the performances, the live performances and the energy you get as an artist and as an audience together. It's just, uh, yeah, I miss it a lot. Uh, I miss being in the audience. I miss being on stage. And uh, I certainly hope that we will get some sort of normal music life back very soon. Uh -huh.